You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. Uh, I am Dr. Jim Shores, Professor of Communication, and it's my honor to introduce Russell Berry, who we've had the privilege of having on our campus for the past two days. Uh, Russell went to school at the University of Pennsylvania. He's originally from Philadelphia. And there he studied um, Africana studies and sociology. Uh, but after that, his wife and he went on to do campus ministry for 20 years with Crew Ministries. But most recently, he is the teaching pastor in Brooklyn, New York at the Bridge Church, with both he, where he lives with both he and his, uh, his wife and his daughter. But he also um, uh, creates content for our Daily Bread Ministries, and out of that came the impetus for the documentary Juneteenth, which we had the privilege of watching screening last night in the CLC and had a fantastic Q&A afterwards. So it is a privilege to have him here. Please give a very warm, rousing welcome to Mr. Razul Berry. Thank you. Ah, thank you so much. Uh, it is a joy. It's been a joy for me to be here with you. And uh, it's, I've just had such great hospitality. So I want to thank uh, Dr. Esther Jadhav and uh, President Brown for, you know, their leadership and bringing me in. We first started dreaming about this uh, at a conference about a year ago. And, uh, and now, you know, since we've been here, just the professors that I've been able to talk to some of you in class with Dr. Okinson and Shores and Whitaker, and it's just been such a delight to be here. But I want to jump in because we don't have a lot of time, and uh, there's a lot to cover in a short amount of time. And as uh, Dr. Esther Jadhav mentioned, that we're going to be talking about why confronting what divides us is a gospel issue. We live in a time of great divisions. I don't have to tell you that. You may have gotten that memo already. And it can be a tendency or even a temptation for us to think that the best thing to do, the, the Christian thing to do, is just to downplay and avoid talking about or working through contentious topics for the sake of unity and the sake of the gospel. And unity in the sake of the gospel is a very important and valuable uh, principle. In fact, uh, we see Jesus pray um, in the high priestly prayer about unity. And so we see him pray in John 17, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. And there's a couple of key important phrases in that prayer. I mean, one is significant because this is Jesus' last recorded, you know, prayer for the disciples before his crucifixion. So it's kind of important. And of all the things he could pray for, he prays not only for these, meaning the disciples, but for all those who believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's us. 
And of all the things he could be praying for us, it's almost as if he peered 2,000 years into the future and know what the key issue would be. He says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. To the same degree of the unity that is experienced by the Father and the Son and the Trinity, he's saying that may, we, may they be like that. And we have a long way to go to see that prayer realized. But not only is that prayer something that's significant, but we also see in the first book of Acts, right? So in Acts, right before his ascension, he gives instructions. And we see in Acts 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, it's interesting the way that he once again frames that challenge and that charge. It's not just a geographical, but it's also something much more complicated about people. You see, Jerusalem was where they were at the time, and it's where he was crucified. Judea is the outer area that includes Jerusalem, kind of the county and beyond. And this is the area where he experienced great rejection in ministry, conflict, And then we get to Samaria. Now it starts to really heat up and get interesting. A place that most well-respecting, godly, God-fearing Jews would not go because it was a place where there had been ethnic conflict for centuries. It was a place where there was theological differences, political differences, ethnic differences. They didn't like going to Samaria. And he says, you are my witnesses in Samaria. And if that wasn't scandalous enough, He doesn't end there, but he says, to the ends of the earth. Now, this would have been a jaw-dropping command in a lot of ways. And that means he organizes his thoughts around how they are to do and think about mission through the lens of those areas that are going to be of conflict. Places where Jesus is rejected, places where there are ethnic conflicts and religious differences, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. So, confronting what divides us is a gospel issue. It just simply is. And what we see happen from Acts chapter 2, when Jesus ascends into heaven, until chapter 6, where we're going to be looking at, is this incredible growth of the church. I mean, Jesus heads, you know, he, he, he ascends on the cloud, and the disciples just are like looking up like, wow. And I can imagine Peter looks over to Thomas and says, you think he's coming back? And Thomas says, I doubt it. <laughs> and they stay there so long that the angels have to come and go, hey, guys, like, He said he was going to do what he did. Now it's your turn to take the baton and go and run the play. And it it starts off smashingly well. Peter preaches, 3,000 come to faith. They heal a blind man. They get arrested. They rejoice. And the numbers continue to grow. I mean, for our church planner friends out there, I mean, could you imagine the first day of 3,000? That's a pretty good day. And in the midst of this unprecedented growth, we see something happen 
and 6 and verse 1. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. There arose a complaint. It notices that the, the complaint arose as they were increasing in number. The outpouring, if you will, that starts in Acts 2 is continued on. There's still growth happening in their midst, but yet there's this problem that arises, and there arose a complaint. It says by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, one of the things we have to quickly kind of understand and, and clarify is that there were two major different groups of Jews at this time in, among their fellowship. The Hebraic Jews were those who grew up in Palestine, in Israel, who grew up in Galilee, in Jerusalem. These were the locals. And they typically understood Aramaic and Hebrew, and, and, and they had their customs that were more ha handed down over time. But then there were, there were the Hellenistic Jews. And Hellenistic basically just meant from the Greek Greco-Roman Empire. And these were folks that were scattered abroad, maybe from the Babylonian captivity, maybe from the Persian Empire. They had been scattered, and they were ethnically different and diverse, but they also, in their customs, they were different. And for some reason, for some reason, we see that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. And I live in Brooklyn, and I get to see a lot of different types of Jewish groups. I live in a part of uh, Brooklyn called Crown Heights where there's a ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community. These are the folks with the black uh, suits and the hats. And that's a very different perspective than when I went to Israel and met Ethiopian Jews. And so there's a great sense of diversity among this diaspora, but in the midst of that diversity, there arose a complaint. And the first point of how we confront what divides us is to listen to the cross-cultural complaints. Luke records this complaint, and this complaint happens across ethnic and cultural lines. And you got to understand the stakes here are intense. You see, widows in the first century had no other way of supporting themselves. And these folks had come to Jerusalem, maybe for the day of Pentecost, and then they heard about Jesus and Peter's message, and now they're there because they're committed to the Jesus movement, but they have no means to support themselves. And if they're being discriminated against in their entire faith community, then how does that look to them and the rest of the world? They, this was a life or death issue for them. And in the midst of that, we see an incredible response. Now, we can get help looking globally at how to respond to certain of these issues. Some of us have seen and maybe understood the uh, South African apartheid. When that regime came to an end in the 90s, there was fear across the globe that it would be an uprising in a war unlike we had ever seen because, you see, 80% of the population in South Africa were black or colored or Indian who had been discriminated against by the 20% of the white Afrikaners. 
So then Nelson Mandela, who had been tortured in prison for 20-some years, gets out, becomes the president, and everybody's like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when 80% of the population is in power and can have revenge? And Bishop Desmond Tutu at that time and other leadership from uh, the African, uh, the ANC, they got together and said, we have to have a truth and reconciliation commission where we need to bring everyone together, all people across the board, to tell the truth about what happened. And so as we can tell the truth, we can actually reconcile and heal as a nation. And many will say, and many of the believers that I've talked to when I've been to South Africa will say, what happened there was miraculous, and, and it stemmed the tide of what they could see as potentially ongoing ethnic conflict for generations, because there was truth and there was reconciliation. And in the American Christian narrative, as Dr. Soon Chan Ra writes in Prophetic Lament, we have yet to engage in a proper funeral dirge for our tainted racial history and continue to deny the deep spiritual stronghold of a nation that sought to justify slavery biblically. And so we can't get past it, and we haven't because we try to ignore it. Let's just put it away in the closet and pretend that it doesn't exist for the sake of unity. No, South Africa and, other, and the gospel itself shows us the way we get past it is to deal with it. Have you listened to the complaints that have arisen? Do you even hear them? In the two days since I've been here, I've heard them. I've had conversations with students that tell me how difficult it is to be an ethnic minority in certain ways and be heard and be seen or a woman in certain spaces and be heard and be seen. Sometimes there's big city, little small town dynamics going on. Are we able to listen to the complaints that have arisen? Well, look, let's see what happens next, because what happens next gives us a clarity. In verse 2 and 3, we read, The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint for this duty. So one, we know the disciples listen to the complaint because Luke writes about it, and then their response is not to push it under the rug, but they actually have a meeting of all the believers and say, we need to hear about this. And they had the Hellenistic Jews share about what was happening, and as a result of them sharing, they come up with a plan and say, we need to select and delegate people to this task. <laughs> and here's the trip. Were the, were the disciples Hebraic or Hellenistic Jews? <coughs> this is not a rhetorical question. Hebraic. So they recognized it was this people from their own tribe who were parting the discrimination, and they still leverage their influence as a majority. They don't get offended. They don't get sensitive. They don't get defensive. They say, they don't call it critical distribution theory. They say, look, let's deal with it. Are you leveraging your influence? The second point is to leverage your influence. Brene Brown writes, you cannot have that conversation without shame because you cannot talk about race without talking about privilege. And when, you, when people start talking about privilege, they get paralyzed by shame. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is it gives us the tools and resources to go push past shame to something greater 
to something that can help us come together because we realize that Jesus has erased all shame. So the reality is we all mess up. We all say and do and, and act in ways in which our fall short of the gospel's call for unity. But that doesn't mean we stop trying, and that doesn't mean we ignore it. It means we lean into it. True reconciliation requires leveraging your influence for others. Dr. Shores, we were talking about leadership and how leadership is influence. And all of you in this room, all of us have influence. And if we want to see something new and different and dynamic in our generation, if we want to see this stronghold broken down, then we have to leverage that influence for others. But in order to do that, we have to get past pseudo-community. That's fake community. This is how Steve Peck defines pseudo-community. When participants are nice with each other, playing safe and presenting what they feel is the most favorable sides of their personalities. Sounds a lot like dating, right, in the beginning. You know, you just kind of edit yourself, give, you know, the highlight reel of your life, and you want to try to put your best foot forward. But when we try to do that in community, especially in diverse community where we have to work through issues, then it's just fake. And nobody does fake like us Christians in Smiley Fellowship where there's a lot of stuff under the surface. But this is what Steve Peck has explained, the process. This is what it looks like. I got to go through this quickly. We have to go from pseudo-community to chaos. That sounds like fun. Chaos is when you actually welcome and embrace and, and listen to the complaints. That Hellenistic Hebraic Jewish widow moment was probably chaotic. But out of that chaos, when you actually hear the complaints, then the next thing that can may happen is emptiness. Because it's like, I don't got solutions. I don't know what the answer is. But if you hold on just a little while longer from that emptiness, because that's the place where we can all get to the place where we go, you know what? We have to come up and create solution that none of us have by ourselves. And that's where we get to true community, not pseudo community, but true community that looks like us actually listening to each other and moving together. Are you committed to helping resolve the complaint? Well, once again, the disciples help us here. Look at what happens. It says in verse 5, this proposal pleased the whole company. Somebody say the whole company. All right, let's try that again. I'm from Black Church. We got to do call and response. The whole company. Thank you so much. That just helps me move through. Make sure I know that y'all listening. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is fascinating. And the reason why Luke specifically adds their names is because all of their names are Hellenistic names. These are not like David and, you know, Judah and all the like Hebraic names. So this means that the disciples, these Hebraic Jews intentionally look to have folks who were part, who were experiencing the discrimination be part of the solution and put them in leadership. And so the third point is that we lend support to empower others. He said, hey, how about we recruit some folks who are in on this and knows these widows personally and can actually help and support and give them what they need. 
And look, the whole proposal pleased the whole company. And then they stood in the, before the apostles who were the leaders, and they laid hands on them and prayed, and they commissioned them out to go and do the work. The majority listened to the minority voice and empowered them to lead. And this changed the game. It changed everything. Because what we see in verse 7, we, we're, we're told, look, it says, So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. <coughs> they were increasing in number before, but now Luke adds that they increased greatly in number. Because people saw something was going on different in this community. It wasn't just like what it was in a Roman Empire where you just took care of your own and wherever you were from, then people just looked after each other. But in this community, there was something different because across ethnic lines, across racial lines, across linguistic lines, they were serving and building with each other. And they increased greatly in number as a result. This is why confronting what divides us is a gospel issue. Because how is it that we can say we have something to offer that is unique to the world when we are just as divided as the world? It doesn't sell. It doesn't work. And that's why Jesus prayed, may they be one in me so that I am in you, so that the world will know who I am. The two things are connected and linked. And so the fourth point is that we must commit ourselves to this aspect of the gospel. Commit ourselves to this aspect of the gospel. A commitment means it's not just a feeling. It's not just something that sounds good and then I file it away in my notes and I keep moving, but it's a, a, a commitment to be intentional, to be proactive, and to see that for me to be a witness for Jesus in my Jerusalem, where I'm from, in Judea, that's a bit wider, in Samaria, in places where are not from where I'm from, maybe even feel like the opposite, and to the ends of the earth, I have to recognize and understand that part of that takes being committed to listen to the complaints of those that are not like me, to lean into that and lead by example and to leverage my influence for others. But I have to do that with commitment because this situation and these conflicts that we see in our world wasn't built in one day. It was built over centuries. And so we have to have the perseverance to maintain throughout that time. You know, since I've been here, uh, you know, it's been such a privilege because I remember hearing about a year ago about how the Spirit was moving in this place and it got this national and even international attention. And I was one of those people reading and praying and encouraged. And as I've been here over the last couple of days, I, I was told about this event called a witnessing circle that happened the night before things broke out, where there was an opportunity where folks were hearing about the stories of those who had been enslaved in this area and praying about that history and praying about just that moment and what that means for us being in this particular part of the country. And there are those who believe that as the gospel choir came out and were just worshiping and praying and singing together that same night, 
that there was something that happened in the spirit that broke a barrier, that broke a wall, that unleashed what would come next. And here's the reality, and here's, I think, the thing I would encourage and even caution about moments like that. Because as incredible as those days were last year, it would have been very easy just to go back to the book of Acts for the disciples just to look at Pentecost and go, that was amazing. What do we do to kind of recreate that over and over again? That outpouring of the Spirit that happened on that day. But that was sort of a catalyst moment to kind of be a springboard into something that was much more lasting and much more permanent, which is what happens in Acts chapter 6. And I think in this season, God isn't calling us for necessary to search for and pine for another outpouring. He's looking for outpourings. Outpour rings of, 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 of what it looks like for us to be committed to the gospel in all of its facets, in all of its forms. And in this season, in our nation's history, we, in case you hadn't heard, we're in the middle of an election cycle that is about to get even more toxic than we've ever seen before. And in the midst of that, can there be a witness in the church that says we are going to listen to the complaints of those that we don't know and don't connect with. We're going to think about and pray and lead and leverage our influence to create a type of community, of fellowship, of unity, and of reconciliation unlike the world has ever seen. And the reality is, just like Princess Leia said to Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. I really believe that because in this season of life, there's still enough vision, there's still enough dream, there's still enough belief in the possibilities of what could be, and you're not tethered by the power structures and the influence structures of the system that you can dream up a new reality. And lastly, I'll just offer, this is why, this is, we offer Juneteenth Faith and Freedom as an opportunity to be a part of that process. So uh, I don't know if we have the QR code up, uh, that I offered before. Um, but there's a way, if not, then you can just go to experiencevoices.org. But um, essentially, what we experienced last night was powerful and precious. But you can do that yourself. We've given you the, skill, the, the resources. You can just fill out a, a form online. We'll give you the film to have local conversations in your dorm room, in your, uh, at your house conversations that can help you listen to the complaints and lead by example and leverage your influence for the kingdom of God. May we trust God to live out this example of Acts 6 and see a transformation in ourselves and in our world unlike we've ever seen since Acts. God bless you and thank you.